Corner Fringe Ministries presents The Hell of Torah, Part 4, with Daniel Joseph. Well, we are in our fourth week of this theme, The Hell of Torah. And little by little, we've been building a case to prove the legitimacy of Torah simply by looking at one aspect of Torah alone. Obviously, there's countless aspects that we could utilize, many roads we could go down to show and to prove that Torah is valid today under the new covenant. While all those believers are putting our faith in Yeshua, it is legitimate today. There's so many different avenues we could go down, but we're just looking at one. One. And what is that? It's the fiery judgment of God. The fiery judgment of of God. There is no doubt Yeshua is going to come back. And as we've seen, the gates of heaven are going to open. He's going to come out and literally fire is going to proceed from his mouth. It's going to pour forth. It is going to kindle the universe. Everything that is defiled, everything that is wicked in this universe, on this earth, it is going to burn up. And what is that fire? It's the Torah. It's the hell of Torah. It is God's righteousness, His holiness. His commandments are going to proceed forth and judge. Well, this week, we are going to continue this theme, the hell of Torah. But this week, we're going to begin to take some twists and turns, if you will. And we're going to discover some beautiful truths that are oftentimes not seen. Beautiful truths that are oftentimes overlooked. You know, if I may borrow from the words of Yeshua in Matthew 13, he says that the scribe who's instructed concerning the kingdom of God, what he does is he brings out some things new and some things old. Well, today I'm going to be bringing out things new and things old. Things I have covered before, things you have heard me teach on, and things you haven't heard me teach on. Now, if you remember last week, we left off with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, he makes this image, and he sends out the command throughout the land, bow down to this image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse. So what happens? The king throws them into the fiery furnace. And it was at that point that we left off last week. That was the crescendo, if you will, of the story. Well, I want to circle back to this crescendo, because it's this part of the story that's literally bursting with prophetic insight as to how the fire of Torah is going to affect the righteous. And not just that, but we're also going to find that the story itself holds deep spiritual insight, deep spiritual insight into uh, the faith itself, or what I would like to call, and you're going to become familiar with this term today, the structure of the faith. We see the structure of the faith right in this story. So with that said, let's go back to this crescendo um, In Daniel 3.23, we read the following. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Do we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And verse 25, Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. 
Here we're given some amazing insight as to what happens to the righteous when the hell of Torah is unleashed. We find that the fire has no power over them. The fire does not consume them. The righteous are literally, think of it this way, they're brought through the fire. Not even the smell of smoke is going to be on them. However, having said that, does that mean that the fire of Torah, the hell of Torah, has no effect on the righteous? Not necessarily. Let me explain by going to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. In chapter 3, he talks about how we are going to be affected. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid or that which is Messiah Yeshua. Two things, critical things are established right here. Number one, Yeshua is the foundation of it all. He's the foundation. There's no other foundation. It is him and him alone. But the second thing to note here is the warning. You better be careful how you intend to build upon the gospel, upon the foundation of Yeshua. And I want you to think about that because that talks about how you move in your faith, the things that you do for the kingdom of God. This is what he's referring to. Now listen to what he says as he continues. In verse 12, he says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, look at all the different elements. We got metallic elements, we got stone, and then he talks about the weaker elements, if you will, wood, hay, and straw. Totally different from each other, obviously. Each one's work will become clear for the day The day. What day do you suppose? He's talking about the last day. The coming of Yeshua, right? The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And we continue on in verse 14. If anyone's work which he has uh, built on it endures, he will receive a a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through the fire. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that the fire of Torah that is coming, even though a man might be found righteous, okay, even though his incorruption puts on corruption, it doesn't mean he may not be affected. He may lose the works that he did for the kingdom all in the name of Yeshua. He may lose some, he may lose all. Yeshua is the judge, we'll find out. You might say, that sounds really bad bizarre. How is this possible? What example could you give me that it wouldn't even make sense to, to corroborate what Paul is talking about here? Fortunately, we have such an example with the teachings of Yeshua. It applies to this very thing, and he sends out the same warning that Paul sent out. And listen to what Yeshua says in Matthew 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Verse 2. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that uh, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have 
their reward. This is fascinating. Charity is a godly thing. It is a Torah observant thing to do. One of the most powerful things you can do as a believer in Yeshua is charity. Is to give away your possessions to another. Especially those, obviously, those who are in need. One of the most powerful things you can do for the kingdom. And here the warning is, is Yeshua looks at the hypocrites and he's warning his disciples, don't be like them. Don't seek the glory. Don't do it in front of men because if you receive your glory, there's your reward. You've already received your reward. You've glorified yourself. And he goes on in verse 3 and we read, But when you do a charitable deed, do not left, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. That is amazing. It will be preserved. The work that you do in secret will be preserved. The fire is not going to burn it up. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about. Right? Amen? But if you do it to receive glory from men you can assure it's going to be likened to what Paul talked about, the wood, the hay, the straw. The fire that's coming is simply going to devour it, and there's no reward left. Amen? Now, I want to ask a question. This is one I haven't asked yet in this series. How is it possible that the righteous are preserved through the fire of Torah? I mean, this is the question. Is this not the question? How is it possible that the righteous could be preserved through the fire that is coming through the fire of Torah? I mean, we're basically asking, how do we obtain eternal life? What's the secret? I want to know. I want to know what the secret, because my life depends on it. Your life depends on it. Well, what is so beautiful about this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that right within the story itself, we're given understanding as to how the righteous are saved. Right within the story, we're given the secret. And this is what I would like to call the structure of the faith. This is the secret. Doesn't sound like much, but it is. It is everything. It is the key, if you will. This is something that shows us what salvation looks like. And when you understand this concept, I can tell you right now, you are never going to look at the Scriptures the same way again. You will never look at the Torah the same way again. Your eyes are going to see things they have never seen before. You are going to understand things in the Word that you have never understood before. Today and even next week, we are going to see that the pages of the Bible, they are filled with this concept showing a chemistry, if you will, of salvation, where you'll see perfect, in, in perfect clarity the fact of the harmony, if you will, that law and grace have with each other, that there is a union between the two. And from a biblical standpoint, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, how many of you have ever heard of a stereogram? Anybody ever heard of a stereogram? We've got one or two. Well, let me show you what a stereogram is. Simply a piece of, art, of, of artwork. That's all it is. What you'll notice about stereograms is they're patternistic, if you will. 
uh, in design. Now, we could hang this up, and I could have this up uh, three, four weeks, five weeks, and everybody would look at it. It looks nice. It looks like flowers and some nice greenery. It's appealing, not really offensive. But that's a one-dimensional view. To those with a trained eye that know that there is something concealed in here, and they have the trained eye, and they know how to look at this picture, this picture all of a sudden comes out. There's another picture with inside. It is a three-dimensional holographic picture. Right in this picture right here. It's a 3D holographic picture. And you can't see it, but over here, all like right here, is this big circle and another circle inside of it. And it's cupped, almost like this big target symbol with a flower, you know, this big flower puffing out. It is absolutely breathtaking when you visualize it, when you can see it. Now, most of you are still looking at it, and you're like, I don't see anything. I don't see anything. That's one of the funny things is, is these stereograms, here's another one. This one's incredible because this one has a magnifying glass here, a magnifying glass up here, and it is peering in to these willows of, 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 of flowers, and it's honing in on them. Absolutely gorgeous. But to most of you, it just looks like an, a nice little picture. To the untrained eye, I can remember about 10, 15 years ago being in an office, and we had three of these pictures up in the office, and I'd walk in one day, you'd see a guy just standing there looking at it. With all the diligence that he had, I'm going to see this picture. Uh, you see other guys going in, there's nothing there. You guys are so full of it. There's nothing in this picture. I'd see other guys sitting there as long as a half hour, not moving, staring into it because they wanted to see so bad. What I told them was there. I told them, this is a 3D holograph. You've got to see this. It's incredible because when you see it, it's, it's breathtaking. It literally comes out at you. The reason I'm showing you these pictures, I want to give you some perspective in regard to how Scripture functions. It functions like that of a stereogram where we do find in Scripture that there are critical concepts, concepts that are hidden or concealed from the rest of the world, where the Bible is simply a one-dimensional pattern, but to others, it's three-dimensional. To others, they marvelously see that it literally comes alive in a holograph, and they can look around it, and they can look under it, and they get spiritual perspective, a perspective that is concealed from everyone else. Perspective like that of the structure of the faith. For those of you who are not aware, this is the key to unlocking so much of understanding that beautiful relationship between law and grace. However, before you get to this point, one of the things about these stereograms that's interesting is if I took you aside, you could spend weeks looking at this and never get it. And I could take you aside, and within less than a minute, I could teach you how to look and how to see this. And so there's an element, there's a tool needed by understanding, by being able to see the structure of the faith. There's a key. And that key is understanding a fundamental principle that is woven throughout the tapestry of Torah. And what is that? That is this. 
all things are established on the testimony of two or three. This is the fundamental principle woven throughout the tapestry of the word. Once you have this key, this ability, this knowledge, once you have this, the structure of the faith all all of a sudden begins to take three-dimensional form. It no longer looks like a one-dimensional pattern, all right? But it beautifully comes to life. Let me give you some examples. Now, for those of you who have been with me, you've heard me talk about the testimony of two over and over again. Well, let me give you some examples of how this is woven out through the tapestry of the universe, life, scripture. When you think of how man was created with dust and breath, it's not just the breath of God. Man was not established by the breath. He was established by dust and breath. The testimony of two. All things are established on the testimony of two or three. You look at marriage. How did God ordain and confirm marriage? It wasn't man marrying himself. It's the testimony of two, a man and a woman. Ish ve haisha. You look at, go take it further. How do man and woman procreate? It's on the testimony of two. God has given us the ability to create life but on the testimony of two, right? You look at Joshua. How did he send out his spies? Did he send out one? Did he send out five? No. He sent them out by two. He sent out two spies to Jericho, right? Even go back to Moses. You think about the 12 spies that went out to spy out the promised land. How many spies came back with the truth? With the true report? God established truth on the testimony of two. That's how he did. Amen? You think about Yeshua. Sends his disciples out two by two. The heavens, right? Created with two great lights. Not one, could have been just the sun. Created two great lights. The sun and the moon. The heavens themselves are divided into three parts. We have the cloudy heavens, the starry heavens, and then the unseen heaven where our master resides you move to the tabernacle the tabernacle itself is divided into three parts you could say two main parts the holy place and the holy of holies and then you would have that third part the outer court you move on and look at this the bible god's word god's word breathed is divided at times into three parts with what you would find in Judaism, they call the, the Hebrew Bible the Tanakh, which is an acronym for the Torah, the Navim, and Ketuvim, which means the law, the prophets, the writings. And so three, the testimony of three, or oftentimes, how is it referred to in the New Testament? Simply the law and the prophets. It's the testimony of two. Over and over again, we see these things. How did the tablets of the testimony come down? Not in one tablet. It came down in two tablets. Two tablets. Judgment is established. The law is established. God establishes these things. You think about, you get in Deuteronomy 19, you cannot put a man to death except by the testimony of two or three. Cannot happen. Because the thing has to be established by God. When Moses, in Deuteronomy 4, he actually calls witnesses against Israel. He goes, I call on heaven and earth. He doesn't say, I call on heaven alone, Shemaim or Eretz. He says, Shemaim ve Eretz, heaven 
and earth. You look at this, everywhere we go. You think about the history of the universe. Think about the history of the universe is divided into three main pivotal moments. And that is creation, redemption, and judgment. And interestingly enough, every single one of these was done on the testimony of two. The Father working through the Son. All things were created from the Father through the Son. How did the Father redeem the world? How did he redeem the elect? The Father redeemed them through his Son, right? Judgment. The Father is going to judge through the Son. Testimony of two. And you look at the Godhead itself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All things are established on the testimony of two or three because of the very nature of our God. Think about that. When you get this concept, when, you're, when your eye is trained to see uh, the Bible in a 3D fashion, the structure of the faith, what I'm talking about, it comes out like a hologram. It's, a, it's a absolutely incredible. And when you truly understand the structure of the faith and what it consists of, then and only then do you realize just how important it is to keep God's law then you realize that it is still valid. This is not something you want to cast behind your back, but actually you're going to run to it when I show you what I show you today. So with that said, let's begin to peer into this biblical stereogram and obtain a three-dimensional image of the structure of the faith. And what better way to start than by going all the way back to the beginning, going all the way back to the father of the faith, going back to Avraham. And this is what we read in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Avram. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Avram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Verse 3. Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. So the Lord, right at the front end of this story here, the Lord tells Abraham, Go outside. Go outside, look up to heaven, and I want you to count the stars. Now, I want you to see something here. It's not part of our topic, but I, I want you to see the richness of the word. This statement made right here has a prophetic significance to it um, because of the terms and because of what the Lord commanded Abram. He commanded Abram to look up and count the stars, and then he likens the stars to the descendants of Abraham. Now, this is rich with meaning, and I'll tell you why. Because as we continue throughout the Bible, we find the righteous are actually likened to stars. This is quite interesting. Let me just briefly show you this. Psalm 147.2, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. It is referring to those outcasts of Israel. He is calling his elect. He calls them by name. 
Enoch 43, verse 1. And I saw other lightnings and the stars of heaven. And I saw how he called them all by their names, and they hearkened unto him. They came unto him. When you continue in the passage, I didn't put it up here, it actually says these are the holy ones, the elect of God. This is what it is. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. This is talking about the coming of Yeshua. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is just fascinating. The simple point I'm making here is that these stars that are mentioned here in Genesis 15, they quite literally represent his descendants. It's just interesting. Now, continuing on in the passage... How does Abraham respond to the Lord? He responds with one of the most prolific, the most well-known passages in all of the Word. And that is Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it him for righteousness. Because Abraham believed that what God had told him he was able to do, we find God considered Abraham righteous before him. His faith was accounted to him for righteousness. This is powerful. And here we're given the first part of the structure of the faith. That is faith itself. The real belief in your heart and in your mind that God is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do. It's the belief. It's the faith. Abraham had this faith. Now the Apostle Paul gives a great commentary on this story of Abraham in his epistle to the Romans. And I want to go there and listen to what he says in Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him righteousness. In other words, Paul's telling us that Abraham's faith in God is the reason why God declared him righteous. Pure and simple. The Lord didn't declare Abraham righteous because of his works alone. It wasn't Abraham's works that prompted the Lord to declare him righteous. It was the fact that he believed in him. He believed what he was promised would come to pass because he had the power to do so. You think of this statement here in 11's uh, Hebrews eleven six, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is the first and foremost critical part of the structure of the faith. You have to believe. There's not another option. But is this all? Is faith merely conceptual in nature? Can I say, I believe in Yeshua, and yet continue to walk in sin, continue to murder, continue to cheat, steal, lie? Would I still be declared righteous? Or is there more to faith than just conceptual alone? Well, if we go back to the story of Abraham, we do find that there is more to it. Faith is not concept a concept alone it has depth there's structure to the faith and as we continue in the story of abraham you're going to find this to be true 
Now, we've already discovered that in Genesis 15, just as a quick recap, God states to Abraham, hey, I'm going to make your descendants as the stars of the sky. Abraham responds to God how he doesn't respond with doubting, he responds with belief. He believes it, therefore he's declared righteous. Well, when you look at Genesis 15, 6, it sure seems like case closed, right? But it's not. That's not the end of the story. Actually, as we continue on in the story of Abraham, we're told that God commands him to do something. Take your son, Abram. Take your son, your only begotten son, which the whole image, this is all typology of the father and the son, the father and Yeshua, rather. And so he says, take your only begotten son, Isaac. Bring him up to Mount Moriah, which is Mount Yerushalayim. It's the Temple Mount. Offer him there to me as a burnt offering. All right? How does Abraham respond to his commandment? He does it. He does exactly what the Lord commanded. He takes his son, takes the wood. He goes up and puts Isaac on the altar. And just as he's about to slay him, this is what we read. Genesis 22, 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Wait a second. What do you mean now I know that you fear? I thought this was already established in Genesis 15. Where it said he believed and that it was accounted to him for righteousness. I thought this would have already been established. But here we are in Genesis 22, 12. He says, do not lay a hand on the lad, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now he goes on in verse 13. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. In verse 14, and Abraham called the name of the place Yehovah Yireh. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing. You catch that? Because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Verse 17, blessing I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is by the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. You look at Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, hey, your descendants are going to be as the stars of heaven. Abraham responds, he believes God. Seems like the promise is established. Abraham believed, right? It's evidenced in the statement itself. God declares Abraham righteous. But we see it's not the end of the story. As we move on in Genesis 22, we find God tests Abraham. And it was only upon completing the test that God confirms his promise. Only upon completing the test does God confirm the promise. And Abraham did. Abraham was obedient. Abraham walked out his faith, that true belief in his heart and in his mind. And this is why God blesses him. Think of it this way. Faith moves through obedience. 
the contracted form, and faith is merely the contracted form of faithfulness. You want to understand faith? Understand it in its extended form. Faithfulness. There's an action to it. There's obedience to it. There's fear to it. We've clearly seen God identified Abraham, feared God at all cost, and that's what prompted him to obey him. And you think about the Psalms, right? You think about Ecclesiastes, what we covered a couple of weeks ago. What is the whole conclusion of the matter? Many, what is everything for man? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is exactly how Abraham moved. This is the structure of the faith. It is faith and belief in my heart that God is who he says he is, that Yeshua is who he says he is, and obedience to him. This is a structure that cannot be tampered with. If you attempt in any way to remove one of the items, you're going to find it will result in death. You think that you're going to be justified by removing faith, the belief in God, out of the equation, and yet you're going to walk blamelessly in Torah? You think you're going to be justified? It isn't going to happen. You are deceived. Or if you think you're going to put all your faith in Yeshua, declare Him, profess His name, and walk out disobedience, reject Torah, again, you are deceived. Because understand this, the faith, true faith, is established on the testimony of two. Two or three. That's the fundamental principle woven throughout the tapestry of Torah through even in the New Testament. Revelation 14, 12, we see it right here. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. It's a passage I've covered. Here is the patience. That's hupamane in Greek. It refers to, here is the perseverance, the endurance, the, un, the, the willingness to never compromise. You never compromise. You continue the path. And how are they described? How are the saints described? They have faith and they keep his commandments. This concept is imperative for believers today to possess, especially since we have so many messages coming out of the church that well, we don't need to keep the law. Uh, we don't need, it's not really applicable. It's not binding on us under the new covenant. It's been done away with. I've even heard, well, we don't need to keep the Ten Commandments. People come and visit me here, but about, about knock me over. When they're telling me it's not required, you don't got to keep the Ten Commandments. They're a burden. You think about that. That's deception. I mean, I've looked people square in the eye and said, I'm sorry, my friend, you are deceived. Because that is not the biblical testimony. When we go to Scripture, we find a whole other message is preached. We find one of obedience and one of faith in Yeshua. That's what we find. James really gives a great commentary. I'm bringing out some things old here. He gives a great commentary on the structure of the faith. And ironically enough, guess what he's, he's going to go to? He's going to go to Abraham. It's because it's pivotal. It's a pivotal moment in the Word of God where the structure of the faith is revealed. And this is what he says in James 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can faith save him? As you've heard me say before, this is a million-dollar question. Under the New Covenant, this is in the New Testament, what a question to ask. 
This is amazing. If someone says he has faith, and what is James referring to here? Make no mistake, he's referring to conceptual faith. The belief in your mind. But he says, if it doesn't have works, can it still save him? When you ask this question, and I have asked this question quite often, I am flabbergasted by the answers that I get. By believers. They said, of course. Because all that is required is belief in Yeshua. All that is required is belief in Yeshua. I have had a lot of debates on this. Where they believe conceptual faith is salvation. Well, let's look at how James handles this. Can faith save him? The million dollar question. Well, he goes on and says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Ah, depart in peace, be warm, be filled. You know, this sounds like just Christianese. Oh, I love you. I'll pray for you. May the Lord be with you. Blessings to you. The Lord helps those who help themselves. Off you go. This is basically what James is saying. Depart in peace, be warm, be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What is it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It is dead. James is very, this is, he's so clear. He explains the structure of the faith right here. It's, you, you take obedience works out of the equation, what happens? Faith is no longer faith. It's deception. That's what it is. You have nothing. And this is the very deception that Satan has been so successful in peddling among the church. He is seducing people, getting them to think that their faith without obedience, they're still saved. It's still faith. When in fact, what they are embracing is death because they're refusing to hear from God. They're refusing to hear his voice. Now, James goes on and says in, in verse 18, but someone will say, see, James is very wise. He's already foreseeing arguments that are going to come out. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. So many people would put their hands over their mouths and gasp in church today and make such a statement. I will show you my faith by my works. This is not legalism. This is fear. This is fear of God. This is fear of the hell of Torah. He goes on. Verse 19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. That kind of takes you out at the knees. First he commends you for believing in one God. And then he cuts me out at the knees and says, well, even the demons believe and tremble. I mean, he literally goes to the most wicked and vile this universe have known. Wicked and vile. Even they believe. But you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? That is amazing. It goes right to the story where we see the structure of the faith. Abraham confirmed that promise that he would make the descendants as the stars of heaven because he walked out his faith. It was confirmed. Powerful. Going on to verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
and he was called the friend of God, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. James is not saying that man is justified by works alone. Do not pervert his words. He's saying faith is not faith without action, without obedience, without moving. And it is interesting, notice he says, Scripture was fulfilled. In other words, exactly what I've been telling you. He goes back and it was accounted to him righteousness. When Abraham took his son and he obeyed God, the Scripture, the promise was fulfilled. In other words, confirmed. This is exactly what he's saying. He's showing the structure of the faith. One of the, the, hands down, the most important teaching for us today. Everywhere you look in Scripture, the more you study the Word, the more you're going to see this structure of the faith is filling the pages of the Bible. And it really, literally, like the stereogram, once you get it and you see it, it's everywhere. It's beautiful. It's, it's holographic, if you will. Even the story we began with today, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right within the story, we find the structure of the faith. I mean, just think about what we read. King Nebuchadnezzar, he commands everyone to bow down, worship the image which he made. What do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They refuse. They don't want any part of it. Why? Why will they not bow down to the idol? It's against Torah. God commanded that because you're my servants, I have called you, you can't do these things. It was their obedience. That's why they refused to do it. They were being obedient to God. But not just that, what else do we find? Because that's not all the structure of the faith is. It's not just obedience. It's faith. It's belief. Right within the story, we see they profess and declare their faith in God. When we go to Daniel 3.16, listen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And it's referring to being thrown into the furnace of fire, not bowing down. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. They declared their faith in the God of Israel. And this kind of takes you back to those powerful words that Yeshua speaks in Matthew 10, that whoever confesses me before man, him I will confess before my Father in heaven. Powerful, moving in faith, professing that faith. So right within this story, uh, we see the structure of the faith, belief in God and keeping the commandments. One of the truly amazing things we are shown in this story itself is the image of Yeshua, right? As Nebuchadnezzar he looks down in the fiery furnace, something's off. Something doesn't make sense because look at what he sees. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. He threw three men in there. This is peculiar. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. The reason these men were spared hinges on the fourth character mentioned in this story. The very one who is called the Son of God, who we know to be Yeshua of Nazareth. Our salvation depends upon putting our faith in Him. It all hinges upon Him. Yeshua says, no one comes to the Father but by me. It all hinges on Him. We cannot get to the Father. There's no back door here. You want eternal life, you have to go through Yeshua. There are not multiple paths, unlike what Oprah might tell you. There are not multiple paths to the kingdom of heaven, right? 
There is Yeshua, and that is it. Hope, salvation, redemption, forgiveness, power, authority, everything comes through Yeshua. You want salvation? First thing you need to have is Him. Listen to what He says. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You don't believe in Yeshua, you don't believe His testimony, you cannot be saved. This is one of the most frightening things when you peer out and you look at Orthodox Judaism. It crushes your heart. You pain, you have pain and sorrow in your heart. They are trying so hard, so diligently to be zealous for Torah, to walk out the Torah. It is all in vain if you do not believe in Yeshua. It is all vanity. In Yeshua's own words in John, he says, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but believes in the Father who sent me. This is, this is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No Yeshua no salvation. Amen? Again, Yeshua says in John 6, 47, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. He's the bread from heaven. He's what sustains us. He is what is going to defend us and bring us through this fire at the end of the age, just as we've seen in the fiery furnace story. However, I'm going to say this. That's not all Yeshua taught. Yeshua taught the structure of the faith. We see the structure of the faith being taught through his ministry. On one hand, we find him teaching, hey, that he's teaching faith in him. You can't be saved unless you believe in me. Does he ever teach the second component of the structure of the faith? Do we ever see that in the Gospels? We do. Pay close attention because, again, this is the structure of the faith. In Matthew 19, verse 16, Now behold, one came to him and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? What is at stake? Eternal life, the kingdom of God. He's asking the million-dollar question, How can I be saved? And what is the answer? He said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments that is powerful because you go to john you look at john 3 look at john 6 many other places in the gospel and you will find yeshua telling you want to enter into life believe in me but that wasn't the only thing he said we go to matthew 19 the guy asked him how do i inherit eternal life how do i be, how am i going to be brought into the kingdom of god and his response is keep the commandments again structure of the faith. Understand this concept. Be able to articulate this to your friends, unbelievers and believers alike. We have a great responsibility on our lives being at the end of the age. Amen. I want to close today with a passage found in Second Estras, going back to the very book that I opened up with in this series. There was a part, I don't know if any of you caught it, that I purposely skipped over. I initially took this part out because I knew I was going to circle back. 
And what is so powerful about this is it literally talks about at the end of the age, the people living in the last days, it talks about the righteous adhering to the structure of the faith. This is amazing. Look at what it says here. 2nd Esdras 13.21 Remember he was given this vision and now the angel comes to give him the interpretation. I will tell you the interpretation of the vision and I will also explain to you the things that you have mentioned. As for what you said about those who survive and concerning those who do not survive, this is the interpretation. Listen to this. The one who brings the peril at the time will protect those who fall into peril. In other words, Yeshua, he's coming, he's bringing peril. Read Revelation. The bowls of wrath are going to be poured out. And he says, so he says, the one who brings peril at this time will protect those who fall into peril. Who? Have works and faith toward the Almighty. Works and faith. This should sound familiar because this is exactly what Revelation said. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have faith in Yeshua. The exact same thing. The music team can come back up. We are going to continue this structure of the faith next week. Um, Shabbat Shalom.